This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited to launch this new podcast listener support project. We hope you'll visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for finding out ways of how you can support the podcast, but get stuff in return, like books from our guests here on the podcast, like sending in questions for upcoming guests, like joining me on an actual interview with one of our guests. And of course, the VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly by joining me with whoever we bring in for the podcast stage. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two Advocacy in Action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy in Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Philip Yancey. You've probably picked up one of at least of his books that has reached the 15 million print mark in English alone. He's authored great works such as Where is God When It Hurts? What Good is God? And as well as Reaching for the Invisible God. Philip has also written countless other publications. Uh, Philip, thank you for joining the conversation. My pleasure. Now, for most of us, you know, we have read so many of your works and you've had such a, a remarkable writing and influential career. And as you, as you look back on your last 30 plus years of writing, what would you say were the most remarkable moments and people that helped form you and shape you for this vocational calling of writing? I'd have to mention several different moments. One was a writer's conference I attended, led by John and Elizabeth Sherrill and Catherine Marshall. They had just formed Chosen Books. This would have been back in the 1970s. And they had published The Hiding Place, Crossing the Switchblade, and numerous bestsellers. I went down there. I was a young journalist. I had one book under my belt, Where Is God When It Hurts? And I thought, oh, this is fun. I can just do this on weekends. And supplement my income and get books out there. And they said, no, you can't. You have to take this thing seriously. If you're <laughs> going to be a writer, you need to stop everything else and do nothing but write. I was editor of Campus Life magazine at the time and spending a lot of my time in marketing and, and circulation and things that were not writing. And that comment got under my skin and ultimately led me to quit my job, which I loved. And devote full-time as a freelancer to my writing, and I've been doing that ever since. And right after that came the second key moment, and that's when I started collaborating with Dr. Paul Brand. I had met him when I was doing the book, Where's God When It Hurts, because he was a specialist on pain, or more accurately, painlessness. He's the one who discovered that the disease leprosy was mainly a disease of, of patients losing their protective pain. So they destroy themselves because they don't have the protection of pain. And as I got to know him, uh, my own faith was still in a uh, very tentative phase. I was recovering from a bad church background for sure, family background. I wouldn't have been able to write about my own faith with confidence or with stability. But in Dr. Brand, I met someone who stood up to scrutiny. I could write about his faith. And so I, for 10 years, spent uh, time writing books, three different books with Dr. Paul Brand, which I could do with integrity because he, he really believed and he lived out his message. And in the process of doing that, it became kind of a cocoon phase of my own faith where I was able to figure out what I, what was worth keeping from my childhood and what was worth uh, discarding and and just the frontiers of faith that I've been able to explore in my books ever since. Your books are a transparent look into the deconstructing of the religion of your upbringing. I wonder, as you look back at that that transparency, um, who gave you permission and the tools to to deconstruct your faith? 
who gave me permission? I never asked anybody for permission. Freelancers <laughs> don't have bosses. So, <laughs> um, I, I started writing and virtually all of my books take what I call a personal pilgrimage approach. So I'm, I'm tackling theological and spiritual issues like prayer, like Jesus, grace, but I tend to do it from, um, Oh, starting out in the margins, being aware of people who, like me, may have been raised in a church and we're still trying to figure out what, what should I keep, what should I learn from, and what should I move away from. And I, I like to lower their guard because, you know, when they pick up a Christian book, they're thinking, oh, no, here's another one of those propaganda sheets trying to convince me of something I don't want to be convinced of. So I start where my reader is and where I have been at various times in my pilgrimage and then gradually work my way toward uh, what I hope is is solid theology and, and a reasonable stance. But um, it's my pilgrimage is different than any of my readers' pilgrimages. And I'm not saying you have to go along my path. I'm just saying here is how I struggle with these issues. And I frankly write my books for myself, trying to get through a thorny problem, and am surprised to find years later when the book's out there that I'm not the only one struggling with those issues, that other people have come starting in a different direction and sometimes ending up at a different place. But something about my own transparency and pilgrimage gives them permission to confront um, spiritual issues that they need to confront. Well, I guess I asked per, about permission almost in a good way. I, I remember the first time I was told by a mentor, you know, it's okay if you don't believe that. <laughs> and mm. and the freedom of knowing that I don't always have to regurgitate what has been given to me. And I feel like as I've read your work, um, I would say primarily over the last 20 years of my vocational career, um, I've, I've felt that freedom in a sense um, because I see it within you of – the deconstructing of all the religious clutter that oftentimes we are, are given, um, you know, but also see within you, um, I think this is a common trait too in Brittany Manning's writing, the ability not just deconstruct, but also reconstruct into something healthier. So, uh, you know, what does reconstruction look like for you as you kind of spend your time in your writing, deconstructing some of these, these paradigms that are around us? Well, I'll add one thing to your initial question about who gave me permission. I, I ended up at a church in Chicago, LaSalle Street Church, which was very formative for my faith. When I left campus life and became a freelancer, I was living in Wheaton and I needed to get away from there to create some distance. We moved right downtown, scared to death. This big city, you know, we're Southerners. We, we figure we're going to be robbed and raped every other day or something. And it's not like that at all. You can You can actually live in a big city like Chicago. And um, we found this church that was a grace-based church. It was diverse racially, definitely economically. There were PhDs at the University of Chicago, medical students, and homeless people off the streets because we served a Sunday breakfast. And I taught a Sunday school class there for uh, eight years. And... I started in the book of Genesis and we went all the way through. We got as far as 
the Gospels, and then I moved to Colorado. <laughs> so I went to the Gospels. I never got through the epistles, but it was the kind of place where I could stand up and say, I hit a tough part of the book of Genesis, for example, and say, I I know what I'm supposed to say, but I I just can't swallow that. I really am struggling with this right now. And I wasn't punished for it. I was rewarded. And a lot of people, a lot of churches, give the impression to people who are going through doubting periods, though, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're not welcome here. You're poison. And we chase those people away. And in my case, the church became a welcoming place that allowed me to to struggle and there were wise people who would help me and then gradually I did end up in a in a very biblical place I wasn't rejecting the essentials of the faith but it was that spirit of grace that gave that gave me permission to struggle out loud because we we all do I mean there are some tough things it's not it's not easy to be a Christian we're getting all sorts of alternate messages from the world around us and it doesn't help just to say, don't think, don't think like that. You can't think that. You can't believe that. We're, we're chasing people away. Instead, we should be a, a place that, um, like, like the disciples. You know, there was one, there was one of the disciples who didn't believe the resurrection of Jesus, the most important doctrine that we hold. His name was Thomas, and Jesus only appeared to small groups of people who pretty much already believed in him. Well, one day he did appear, Thomas was there, and we know that story. He said, what, what proof do you need? Do you want me to eat some food? Do you want to touch my scars? Beautiful story, how gentle Jesus was. He wasn't scolding him, wasn't making him feel inferior. But behind that story is the fact that Thomas was allowed into that room. I mean, here's, here's the core disciples. There are only 11 of them now, and one of those 11 doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And the other 10 are, are sure he's wrong, but still they let him in there. And, and the church became a place, that group became a place for those who need more light. And I want the church to be a place for those who need more light. Uh, it was for me, and I, I increasingly wish it, wish it were for other people. Hmm. Uh, we've got to talk about something, and um, you might not want to go here, but I'll ask it. Um, sure. how did you develop the best head of hair among American Christian writers? <laughs> when I was a kid, having curly hair was not a, not something people admired or strove toward. They, uh, would call me curly. Um, and I couldn't find a decent hairstyle. I would comb one side down and that I had a part all through grammar school and through half of high school. And it just looked ridiculous because one side of my hair was plastered down, the other side just piled up in a great uneven lump. And uh, the 60s came along and I, I found a picture of Art Garfunkel. And I took a picture to my barber and said, can you make me look like that? <laughs> and he said, sure, just cut all your hair the same length. And I, I, let him do that, and I haven't changed my hairstyle ever since. Uh, <laughs> it's it's easy to keep. You just I use a pick, not a comb. Just kind of make it stick out as far as it'll go, and there there I am. <laughs> well, if we were giving out awards, I mean, I would I would give that to you on an annual basis. Is like uh, you know, 
as one who struggles with the hairline, it's like we can always pick up a Philip Yancey book and you're going to know <laughs> he's rocking a solid set of hair. Well, it, it makes me stand out. That's for sure. My wife says she can always find me in a crowd. You just don't see too many white guys with a gray afro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as you continue to write and work, um, I wonder if you might share who or what uh, challenges you uh, to, to grow and to learn and, and to rethink your theological assumptions. Every day I get one of the email blasts from Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know him. And about half of them are really stimulating and thought-provoking and illuminating to me. And about half of them, I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> but I, I love it because he's, uh, he's a Franciscan priest who is looser in his view of the Bible than I am and then probably most of your readers are. But he has this view of the cosmic Christ that is something that I think we need contemplate um, why why is there a universe why did God come up with the human race to begin with we tend to be very anthropocentric in our theology we start there and what Richard Rohr does is take a step back and say let's take a look at the big picture what is the goal of all creation the goal of all creation is to sum up all things in Christ. And Jesus was not this kind of last minute plan. Oh, I tried this. That didn't work. Oh, I tried this. this, and I know I'll send my son. Jesus was the plan from the beginning of creation that God was going to sum up all things in Christ. That's clear in the book of Colossians, Ephesians, when Paul dips into some of these mysteries. And it's something that I frankly uh, never heard about when I was growing up. There's a lot of talk about accepting Jesus into your heart, you know, Christ in you. And there are a few passages in the Bible that emphasize that, but there are far more, at least 60, that talk about us being in Christ, that we are not the goal of creation, the summing up in Christ. And as part of Christ's body on earth, we are the visible representation of what God is like. The only way the world is going to know what God is like is if we demonstrate that as part of Christ's body. So that's been a, a growth area for me. Um, the whole more contemplative, meditative side of spirituality through people like Henry Nouwen, uh, Eugene Peterson along that line, of course, Richard Foster. In addition to Richard Rohr, there are people like Henry Nouwen, of course, Richard Foster, Eugene Peterson, who emphasized the more meditative, contemplative side of life. I was not raised with that. Um, and so that's something that I, I need to work on. I think the older you get, that's a good time to really work on that. <laughs> you know, you write a lot of words. I wonder if there's somebody that you're reading that we all should be reading right now that maybe our listeners aren't aware of. I hope your listeners are already aware of Frederick Buechner. It's pronounced Buechner, even though I, I would think it would be pronounced Buechner, but hey, it's his name. He can pronounce it any way he wants to, B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R. What I love about Fred Buechner, and I, he's still living. He's 
over 90 years old now, and I've had a chance to meet him on several occasions, is that he combines good theology with a creative narrative way of expressing it. He's he's a pastor's friend, and he's a layperson's friend because, frankly, there aren't that many people who would have the ability or tolerance to sit there and read tome after tome by Jürgen Moltmann or Reinhold Niebuhr or somebody like that. But um, Buechner has studied under those people, and yet he can present their ideas in a much more accessible way. Now, you've got an updated and combined edition of uh, two of your earlier works, Fearfully and Wonderfully, and The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. And these books are celebrating over 30 years of publication, and you wrote them with Dr. Paul Baran. So before we get to the actual book itself, I know you mentioned him a little bit earlier. Tell us more about your co-author. Dr. Brand was, I say was because he died in 2003, he was a British surgeon who was raised in India, had remarkable kind of old-fashioned missionary parents who did everything. They ran a clinic and an orphanage and a school and an agricultural community. I mean, they just did it all in this remote hill country of India. So he grew up there, then he went to boarding schools in England, worked first as an engineer, and then um, got into medicine, became a surgeon. He went back to India and through a number of providential leadings, ended up as a specialist in the disease leprosy. He was the one who determined that virtually all of the abuse that is associated with the disease leprosy, blindness, missing fingers, toes, uh, whole limbs, comes about because they don't feel pain. People with leprosy don't feel pain. So there are all sorts of stories of uh, uh, patients who are having their their fingers chewed off by rats in the middle of the night because they don't feel anything. They don't wake up. Or working in the yard with a rake and a splinter goes into their hand and they're not aware of it because they don't feel pain. And it gets infected and eventually they may lose that hand. Well, Dr. Brand not only established that fact about leprosy, he came up with all sorts of innovative, creative ways to reconstruct the hands, particularly of leprosy patients, and and uh, came up with quite a unique viewpoint on pain. When I wrote the book, Where is Government It Hurts? That's when I first met him. He was the only one who said, thank God for pain. And I remember when I first saw that, I said, thank God for pain. I've been reading all these books on the problem of pain. And he went on to say, if I had one gift to give my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain. Their problems come about because they don't feel pain. I uh, just on a lark after I read that, called him up, said, I want to come interview you. He was working at a leprosarium down in Carville, Louisiana. It's since changed its nature, but at the time it was a, a full-scale leprosy hospital and research facility, and sat there in the in the lobbies just waiting for him to have a few minutes and I could ask him questions. We became good friends. He had tried to write a book years before based on a series of chapel talks he gave at a medical college in India. It was too long for a brochure or a booklet and too short for a book. But when I read it, I thought, I've never, I've never seen something that puts together science and faith and humanity in this way. 
and so the, that little chapel talk I, I took and spent several years and eventually developed into two books, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. Well, that was 35 years ago. Dr. Brand has since died. The books are still, we're still in print and we're still selling, but a lot has changed in 35 years. Medicine has changed. Back when I first met Dr. Brand, DNA was a recent discovery, so we didn't talk much about that. Um, and readers have changed. A whole new generation of readers has grown up who have less tolerance, they're more distracted, they're more story-oriented. And I did not want the legacy of this great man to be lost. He was a person who affected me and my faith more than anybody I've ever met. And he just is that unique combination of, of scientist, um, humane, tender of wounds, great physician with theological insight. And in this book, we try to combine all three of those because he's giving analogies from the physical body about which he's an expert to the spiritual body of Christ. And I, when I first encountered those analogies, which is blown away by his insight and to him, well, it makes sense. The designer of the universe is also the designer of the cell, the, the atom, the nucleus and all that. The designer of the human body is also the designer of the body of Christ. You know, I'm sure, Andy, that uh, we live in a very fractured, divisive time. We'll look back on this period of history as one of those divided periods. And I think part of it is because we, we keep looking at it in a hierarchical way. You know, who are the experts and who are the who are the people low on the on the ladder? And the physical body and the body of Christ has a whole different way of looking at the human race. We're not judged by how smart we are, what kind of degrees we have, how much money we have. We're judged by how loyal we are to serve the body as a whole. And actually the quote lowest people in that group may actually be the most essential. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12. He says it's not the ones who get all the attention, like the eyes that are the most important ones. It's the the ones who are unpresentable that we treat with special modesty. And I'm thinking bowel cells and kidney cells, you can't get along without them. Your body will die. And it just seemed to me that we have a lot to learn from an organism rather than an organization. And the best organism I know to teach those lessons is the human body. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. I'm chuckling because I was just thinking I've got a lot of former church members at other churches that would probably call me a bowel cell if they wanted to go to <laughs> live with the body of Christ. You know, unique connection here. Dr. Brand um, 
was working at this Carville Leprosy Center, which is right down the river uh, from us um, at University Baptist Church here in Baton Rouge in the 1970s. And he came to our church often and spoke. In fact, um, I shared with uh, a couple of uh, close friends here within our congregation, Dr. Ron and Dr. Patsy Parrott. And uh, when I told him I was interviewing you, they brought me first editions of In His Image uh, for me to be able to read through and kind of prepare for this conversation. So just a unique connection there. Now, as you said, these books are theological works on the human body. You wrote, if we train a telescope on galaxies, stars, planets, and of the universe, and then look through a powerful microscope at the tiny molecules, atoms, and electrons, you notice an unmistakable similarity in structure and pattern. Same creator designed both levels of reality. I wonder if you might share what, what kind of first pulled you to write about the human body and its theological implications. Well, the analogies came from Dr. Brand. And when I read his little manuscript, um, he had had it around for about 20 years, I think. And we were just talking one day. He said, oh, I tried writing a book once. I said, tell me about it. And he, he told me about the chapel talks. And I said, well, where is it? And he said, I don't know. It's around here somewhere. And he started rifling through papers on his desk and couldn't find it. And then he went and started looking in his bureau drawer. And I think it was under his, under his socks that he finally found this 100-page manuscript on India paper, this real lightweight, flimsy paper smeared i think it was the third or fourth carbon copy and he said i don't know if there's anything worthwhile here but that was my one attempt at writing and when i looked at that i thought oh my goodness as a writer i can't imagine a, a bit better canvas to start with to paint on than the human body just his descriptions of the cells and the difference in in bones and then and uh, skin and muscle and there was just so much that I learned and that I could write about and research about and then the stories that he had in work in working with uh, leprosy patients the subtitle of, of the redone book is the marvel of bearing God's image and these are people who are in many cases they were the lowest of the caste the untouchables they were called back then now called Dalits there's nobody lower on the planet, I guarantee you, than someone who's an untouchable in India who has leprosy. They're thrown out of their families, they're thrown out of their villages, they're made to live out in a cave somewhere. And Dr. Bram would take these people, the only orthopedic surgeon among four million people in India with leprosy, and, and literally remake them, remake their fingers, remake their faces, and I met these patients, I heard their stories, and they were just incredible stories of how the image of God can shine forth in any human being, no matter what their circumstances. And our role, our mission as members of Christ's body is to draw out that image of God. That and the science, and then, you know, I was theologically trained, so when he when he made the uh, the application into theology is, oh man, there's a lot more to it than that. You can take it even further. And so over a 10 year period, we just worked through each of those aspects and came up with books that are rather unusual. They're hard to describe, but they they hit a nerve. And I've had many people over the years who say, I went into medicine either as a doctor or nurse or a therapist 
because of reading those books or mothers who say, I never really appreciated what was going on in my body during the nine months of pregnancy until I read those books. And then many others who are challenged to take the lessons for us in the church to act like the body of Christ. We, we are the ones that God has commissioned to show the world what God is like. After watching my wife give birth naturally to two of our girls, uh, I, I don't necessarily have to know how everything functions. I just know that I don't want to experience that. And she is a much stronger <laughs> human being than I could ever desire to be. <laughs> you, you, you talk about, uh, you know, one of the fascinating uh, chapters in the book, you talk about chronic pain and you wrote uh, the, the potential um, denervating uh, the wrong areas, the, the danger of body parts um, and sensitive, uh, the most mysteriously, the chance that, even after nerves are cut, the pain may persist as a phantom pain. I wonder, as you, as you think about the church today, what seems to be some of the, the chronic pain the church is suffering from today? And, and on the flip side of that, what, what diagnosis or treatment plan would you give the church? I would say several things. First is a, a line that Dr. Brand said to me that I've never forgotten. He said, a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain. A healthy body is a body that feels the pain of the weakest part. And I think that's definitely true of the body of Christ as well. We should be attending to people in the Middle East who are persecuted for their faith or who are the victims of oppression and violence. It seems to be almost endemic there. We should be, we should attend to the natural disasters, the typhoons, the tsunamis, things like that. And fortunately, there are many Christian agencies who are on the front lines of, of those. We should be the ones caring about the human side of the immigration issue. You know, there's a political side, but these are, these are people. These are children. And the church should be the one. My wife... Um, volunteered last year to go down to Houston, or actually, I guess it was this year, and we're talking in 2019, and, and she went down to Houston to work on repairing some of the flood damage from several years before. Now, the, the government is very good, the United States government, at coming in with FEMA and setting up trailers and getting things underway, but after a certain period of time, energy lags, money lags, and they take off. And yet years later, there are people from Colorado going down to Houston to clean up some widow's basement and her shed and, and do whatever is necessary there. The same thing is true. There are churches in Houston and Dallas who are still going to New Orleans off of Hurricane Katrina many years before. And that is what we should be doing in, in attending to our pain. So that's one answer, and that's the church as a whole caring for the needs of the world. That's what Jesus did when he was on earth, and we're the body of Christ. We're supposed to be doing what he did. The part that troubles uh, many of us relates to the very last command that, or prayer, really, that Jesus made when he was with the disciples, that beautiful upper room discourse in John 13 to 17. He said, there's, there's just one prayer, and it's so important because this is how the world is going to know that, that you are my disciples, if you love one another. 
And my prayer for you is that you would have the same unity as a church, as a body, that the Trinity has, that my Father and the Spirit and I have. Well, I'd have to chalk that up as Jesus's great unanswered prayer, frankly, because the church is usually known for its division. And the church should be the place where it shows people who are different how to live with those differences. Not all to be alike. No, it's not going to happen. But how to live with those differences. I think of the Apostle Paul, who as a good Pharisee, every day would pray the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile. Thank you that I was not born a woman. Thank you that I was not born a slave. And when he got it, you know, when his life turned around, he's the one who said, in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. And the church should be the place in a divided society like ours where people can say, well, the rest of us can't get along, but those those Christians, they, they sure know how to get along, <laughs> even when they disagree on things like politics and issues. Uh, that's my concern for the church because there's always that pendulum swing between unity and diversity. And sometimes a, a corporation or a, a nation will, will be real strong on the unity side, sometimes on the diversity side. Seems like in the United States now, we're swinging toward the diversity where there are all these different genders that, that, you know, I heard the other day, Facebook has more than 60 different gender types that you can check off. I, I couldn't name more than 10 myself, but, or four. <laughs> and then uh, the identity politics, that's where our nation is. But we're not so unity oriented anymore. We used to have the slogan printed on our coins, et pluribus unum, out of many one. It's more out of one, there are many now, you know, because everybody's crying for their attention and they're crying how different they are and how they want their rights to be respected. Yeah, we need to listen to that. But how do you do that and also have unity of purpose? The church is a place, an organism is a place, and the physical body is a place where you can learn some important keys on how to do that. We're not going to all be alike. And frankly, it doesn't take a lot of grace to be around somebody who's just like you somebody who thinks like you, smells like you, votes like you. Grace is put to the test when you're around people who disagree with you. And that's what the church should be showing the world in a very divided society like we have now. So what's the treatment plan for that? Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, I couldn't answer that in, in a, a list of 10 things to do. There are people who are working hard at racial reconciliation. There are people working hard on the gender issues. Um, the, the ultimate treatment plan is love. Love can overcome differences. And John tells us that when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. And the church has done a really good job on the truth aspect. That's why there are 45,000 different denominations. That's why there are creeds in the church. That's why there have been wars of religion, um, because we, we want to make sure we get the truth right. But I, the treatment aspect, I would say, is we ought to spend a lot more time working, competing to be the more grace-filled church, to know how to handle differences. And if we do that, as I experienced in my church in, in Chicago, so many of the objections to the faith fall away because 
you're around people who love each other and they do that by having Christ in common. They are literally in Christ. And we need that model of an organism working together with all of its different parts for the same goal under the same head. Now in the book, you examine the entire human body and make theological connections um, after theological connections. And, and of all the aspects of the human body you surveyed, which which aspect continues to fascinate you the most in its connection to our creator? I That one's hard for me to uh, pin down. I guess the last section of the book has to do with how the head operates. We tend to think that the head is in control and the head is in control, but it does it in a way that incorporates messages from every cell at the body, in the body, both through enzymes and through direct neural connections. There are nerves that are connecting the entire body, every cell in the body. And when the head operates, it, it delegates as much as possible so that when I touch a hot stove, as, as I did this week, I didn't have to sit there and think about it. Let's see now. Something feels warm. What should I do? How should I respond here? It never reached that level of my brain. There's, there's a loop in my spinal cord that as soon as it detected that, that uh, problem going on in my finger, it ordered... <laughs> The spinal cord itself ordered my finger to move and respond. And now I had to rely on the head to, to make that motion happen, but the order was actually given at the spinal cord level. And one of the things that impresses me most about God's style of working in the world is the humility. I read a book one time called The Humility of God, and I see that all the way through the physical body. In Philippians 2, we have that great passage about God humbled himself. Jesus be, took on the form of a human being, not just a human being, but a servant, not just a servant, one who died a very brutal death. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And religion, broadly speaking, is often seen as this, as this top-down thing. We've got to control people's behavior. But I, I come away just amazed at the respect and the space for human freedom that God allows. I, I quote in the book this statement by Dorothy Sayer saying that God underwent three great humiliations. One was becoming a human being, the Philippians 2. One was the cross. And the third, she said, was the church. And that may be the most humbling <laughs> act of all, to trust God's own reputation, likeness, essence with ornery, disobedient, frail people like us. And yet that was God's plan from the very beginning. And all the way through the epistles, the church is held up as as the, the ultimate goal. Um, I love the translation that J.B. Phillips gives in Romans 8. He says, all of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting to see the children of God revealed. And I think that's a sign of of what God is doing. God is standing on tiptoe waiting to see his family acting like his family. And in the 
as I got to know how muscles work and how reflex actions work, I was just amazed to see once again how this head, the brain, which has all the wisdom and insight and really is the CEO of the boss of the body, it's the boss, yet looks for ways to delegate, delegate, delegate. Delegation is the order of creation. And it seems like delegation is the order of divinity as well. The world has changed. Science and medicine have advanced exponentially since these two books were released. So I wonder if you might share what's changed for you theologically in the last 30 years? Um, what would you say to a, a younger Philip Yancey about the constructs and theological assumptions he had about his writing and how they'll be very different today? I guess I would say that what I tried to give voice to in this book 30 years ago with Dr. Brand became my voice. I remember standing at his funeral. People came from all over the world to honor him. And as I stood there, I said, we had this, we had this strange exchange. We were an odd couple. Dr. Brand and I, he, when I met him, he was in his early 60s, silver hair, distinguished British surgeon with a British accent, spent most of his life in India. And here I am recovering from a, a Southern fundamentalist church with our garfunkel hair. You know? <laughs> and whenever, whenever I show a picture of this, because I've been talking about the book in a couple of groups, uh, I show a picture of what I look like and what Dr. Brand looked like, and everybody laughs. And I say, "Would you trust this guy with your life? You know, <laughs> with your life work?" But he did. And and as I stood at his funeral, I said, "We had this strange exchange, Dr. Brand and I. I gave words to his faith because my job was words, and I could pull, I could do the research in the libraries, I could pull stories out of him, I could visit." places in India and England and interview his patients, his nurses. That's my job. I'm a journalist. But it, it, it really was his book. It was his story and it was his insights. It took years for me to say, okay, I'm ready to write about my own faith. I'm ready to look introspectively about what I believe. And in the process, as I gave words to his faith, he gave faith to my words. Because it only takes one person who genuinely lives out the life that Jesus set before us to convince you, oh, that's what God had in mind. That's, there's a funny line in, uh, sorry, a Woody Allen movie <laughs> from some time ago where he's trying to, he's trying to uh, sweet talk, I think it's Diane Keaton, and he says to her, if you were, if you were around, it's too bad you weren't around when God had his argument with Job. And she looks at him like, what? What kind of pickup line is that? And he said, well, it's true, because then at least God could have pointed to you and said, yeah, but I made one of those. And that that really was the, the convincing part of my faith at a time when I'd seen a lot of hypocrisy and I'd seen a lot of people who used words of faith but didn't live it out in person. Dr. Bram was one who lived it out in person, and then I realized it could be true. It could be genuine, and and I was able to start my own path, my own personal pilgrimage, to try to make those words true for me as well. So what's next? What are you working on? 
I'm working on a memoir, um, mostly about childhood growing up. It ends, most of it ends in college days, but it will answer some of those questions that I've been pretty vague about over the years, uh, telling the stories of, of the toxic church and family that I grew up in, and some hints of, of what God used to pull me and to help heal me from some of those days and wounds. For those that want to stay connected with Philip, you can follow him on social media and visit philipyancey.com. Go out and purchase Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. And stay tuned, I guess, for a memoir about how Philip developed the best hair among American writers. (laughs) That and many other secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Philip, thank you for your lifetime of inviting us to reimagine our understanding of ourselves and God and how this leads to a more vibrant faith journey. Well, it's it's a privilege for me. As I mentioned earlier, I write my books for myself, and it's always kind of a bonus that come, someone comes up to me years later and says, uh, this helped me when I was going through a similar time. Unfortunately, it doesn't help me. It never helps me with the book I'm working on right now, because I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work or not, you know, or if anybody's going to read it. But it, it does keep me going and gives me the energy and inspiration to want to keep going. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself. Other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates, and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items, and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics Shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with a free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash living earth ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support 
for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.